today's scripture reading is found in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 10, 13 through 14, and 30. Take a moment to turn to the text in your Bible to follow along, and I will announce the verses as we go. The reading will also be on the screen behind me. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, O that I would judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did it did to all of Israel, who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. Verses 13 and 14. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who are with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered, and all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Vivian. You can be seated. Well, good morning. Hey, family, so good to see you guys here. Uh, If you're new, I want to especially welcome you to the Parks Church, and uh, this is what we do here at the Parks. We preach through books of the Bible. And uh, we're making our way through First uh, and Second Samuel, and we are we're kind of approaching the end of, of that study here in Second Samuel. And so we'll be taking actually uh, chapters fifteen and sixteen today. So you'll want to keep your Bibles open as I un- unpack that. And obviously, a lot of the text that Vivian didn't read, we'll, we'll walk through as well in those two chapters. So you'll want to have those those open. Hope you guys had a, a great July Fourth. Uh, just just week weekend. Maybe you were able to hang out with some family, celebrate. Uh, just so thankful for what what that day represents in in our country, and uh, just uh, just how grateful we are to live in a, a, f- a free nation. But um, we know that's a a lowercase f freedom, right? Amen. There's a capital F freedom that Jesus Christ uh, promises to us that we celebrate every single day of our lives as believers in Him. Amen. And uh, and so so thankful for that. And again, that's something we highlight. Uh, every time we preach the scriptures is that capital F, uh, freedom. And today in 2 Samuel, guess what? We're going to see it. And, uh, and, and this is, a, uh, again, a tough um, 
couple chapters as the run is because we are um, wading through David's consequences to sin. Consequences that have rolled out in his life because of his disengagement. Disengagement primarily from the Lord and disengagement from, honestly, his responsibilities. And that disengagement is what allows Absalom, his son, to kind of swoop in. And uh, we're going to focus on Absalom, and then in chapter 16, we're going to look at, at, at one of, maybe a, a minor thing, something that, that appears as minor, but I think is actually very significant uh, in this text. And, and so Michael did a phenomenal job last week unpacking two very difficult chapters. And uh, what was, what's interesting about that is, is so in building our preaching schedule, our teaching schedule, and this is just a little bit to brag on Michael, uh, we, we, didn't, we didn't build in Father's Day. So we didn't teach through 2 Samuel on Father's Day. And so I, I was supposed to teach through those two very difficult chapters. And so when that didn't occur, I was like, Michael, look, like, do you want to teach on 13 and 14? And he's like, you know what? Uh, do I want to? No. Uh, but I will because the Lord's going to be with me and help me. And he just did a phenomenal job in, in teaching, teaching the text. So I just want to thank him for, for teaching that because I know how difficult it is uh, when, when the text due to that. And that's the beauty of preaching the way that we do, that we just come into those deep waters um, graciously, humbly, and we ask the Holy Spirit to do his work. But this is a continuation of, of that story and some of the characters that, that, that were there in that chapter from last week. One, which I've already listed, is Absalom. Interesting, Absalom, uh, his name means father of peace, Ab-shalom. Shalom, which is most of you know is a Hebrew word for, for peace. And even in what uh, Vivian read in the text that you have before you, does it sound like Absalom really is about peace? Well, maybe, right? Because he's talking to the people a lot about justice and peace, but we're going to find out if Absalom's really uh, uh, about uh, peace. His his physical stature in chapter 14, if you look at it, his physical stature is actually given. And, and, and Michael didn't deal with this, and so he left it for me. It's actually very rare in your Bible for the physical makeup of a person to be given, right? We know some things about something. David, was, it was said that he was handsome and ruddy, whatever that means, right? We're not sure what ruddy means. Uh, Moses, we, we don't really know his physical stature, but we know maybe that he had a possible stutter or speech impediment. But for Absalom, it's given very specific detail. It said from the sole of his foot, right? So from the bottom of his foot to the top of his head, he was without blemish. Whoa, come on. So like your picture that you're supposed to paint of Absalom is like he is just this, this, this handsome, without blemish kind of dude. And literally, it talks about him getting a haircut. This is chapter 14. Go back and check me on this. It talks how he would get a haircut once a year, right? So he had these locks, okay? And, and, it, and you're like, how do you know he had these locks? Well, it actually says that once a year, he would get this haircut and they would weigh his hair. And it gives the weight of his hair. In the text, okay, in chapter 14, it gives the weight of Absalom's hair. And it's like four to five pounds. Like, I mean, I got a lot of hair, right? And I think I'm going to cut it soon, but it ain't even going to come in at a pound, right? So it, it's just like this picture. And what's it? you're like, why all these details? Well, it's supposed to give you a picture of who Absalom really is. He's this celebrity, People know Absalom, this handsome, this long-haired, this, this powerful figure, right? Listen, even back then, celebrity culture was alive and well, okay? 
And so Absalom would have been known throughout Jerusalem. He would have been known throughout Israel by his physical appearance. But also now in chapter 15, he begins to sit at the city gate. He begins to sit at this place in the city gate. Every city would have had these gates. And these gates were positions of authority. They're where, in fact, the king would have sat and people would have come to them with their problems, really almost like a judge for him to weigh in on their, their problems. And so here, Absalom, because David is absent, once again disengaged from where he should be, Absalom kind of takes this position at the city gate and he begins to tell people, he's like, don't you wish you had a king who would execute justice for you? Wouldn't it be nice if you had a king who actually heard your problems? And listen, your problems are valid. Your problems are real. And listen, wouldn't it be nice if you had a king who could rule in, in your favor? And kind of building his case. And, and the first point I want to make here is this idea of a phony king. A phony king and a deadly ambition. Absalom had a deadly ambition. And that ambition was to overthrow his father, David, and become king. Now, listen, ambition in of itself is not a bad thing. However, ambition can quickly become sinful and deadly. One commentator defines sinful ambition as this, is the desire to create and cultivate one's own kingdom rather than live under the reign of God in his kingdom. That's sinful ambition, to cultivate and create one's own kingdom rather than live under the reign of God's kingdom. And when this occurs, bad things begin to happen. But notice that Absalom is cloaking all of this in justice. Don't you wish you had a king who would execute justice for you? Don't you wish you had a king who would do good? Listen, this is the role of a king. Don't you know that? That he should be here at the gates. But I'm here at these gates and, oh shucks, if I were king, I'd execute justice. Michael, um, very eloquently last week, described kind of this anatomy of sin. And I, I challenge you to go listen to it. But sin also has a way, one of the parts of sin is it has a way of cloaking itself in light and pretending to be good. And our scriptures describe this. That this false justice, this false peace that the father of peace, Absalom, is proposing really is darkness masquerading as common good as justice, when it's no justice at all, because Absalom is about himself, as we'll see. You say, Kyle, how do you know that? Well, not just the, the, the vain representation that's given about Absalom, meaning his physical stature and things like that, but you also see verse 1, look at it, in chapter 15, and after this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. One of the interesting things about Jerusalem and where Absalom would have been at this time is there was absolutely no necessary need for a chariot. Like even to get around Jerusalem and where they would have been geographically, a chariot wouldn't have made any more sense unless you want to what? Show people your power and your strength. So here's what Absalom does is he gets a chariot and he has an entourage. Literally, it says 50 men around him. So he's walking with a horse and with a chariot around the city just to show his power, just to show his status, just to show himself to the people going, listen, if I were your king, you think people believed him? You think people bought it? We'll see, right? I can't say we didn't see this coming. 1 Samuel 
chapter 8. Remember when the people of Israel were demanding for a king, for those of you who have been with us for a long time? People were demanding a king. And do you remember what they wanted? They wanted a king like what? The other nations, that's right. And so look at Samuel's warning going, okay, you want a king like that? Here's what it's going to look like when you get a king like the other nations. Here's what it's going to look like. And one of the verses, look at this. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. When you want to see a king that is like the other nations, this is what he's going to look like. He's going to look at your sons and he's going to say, you're my men, and he's going to put them in chariots. That's not there by accident. You say, Kyle, haven't we seen chariots before with David? We have. But remember what he was doing with the chariots when he got them from the other nations? By and large, he was doing exactly what Deuteronomy told him to do with them, and he was getting rid of them. He was burning them. He, he was not utilizing them. But instead, Absalom, he utilizes them for his own power, his own prestige, elevating himself before the people. Now, Absalom, Psalm 20, we're not sure that it's about him, verse 7, he finds himself on the wrong side of this psalm. That says, some, you know this psalm, some trust in chariots and some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Absalom's trust is in his appearance, in his eloquence, in the chariots, in the men around him. That's where his power is lying. And he's doing it all in the name of justice. That's the source of Absalom's faith, is himself. I think that is the main question at play here when we see Absalom. Where is his source of trust? Where is his source of faith? What is it rooted in? No doubt about it. It's rooted in what? Himself. And when you source where your faith is really rooted, where your trust is really rooted, that's whose kingdom you're actually living for. That's whose kingdom you're actually living for. Absalom was not submitted to King David, his father, he was not submitted to God's kingdom. Absalom was about his kingdom. It's interesting, the language we use here at the Parks Church. If you've been around here, you know we use three words. King, kingdom, and common good. Thank good. Sometimes people are like, I, do people even see that around, right? King, kingdom, and common good, right? That's what we're about. We're about King Jesus. We're about living under the rule and reign of our King, who is Jesus, in his kingdom, and seeking the common good and welfare of everyone, all the Imago Dei around us, right? That is what we are about. What happens, though, when those things get out of order, right? When we begin to set up the wrong king, let me tell you, when we begin to set up the wrong king, we will inevitably live in the wrong kingdom, and the common good actually isn't common good. It's common bad, it's detriment. It may look like good on the surface, but it is ultimately dreadful. Because why? We're pointing people to the wrong king in the wrong kingdom. So listen, those aren't just three catchy words that we use. They are serious about what we're about. We're about King Jesus, his kingdom, and the common good that flows through his reign in his kingdom to all people. Now, Absalom, I think, is a warning to us that we can say we're about common good, common good, rooted in the wrong king and wrong kingdom. You see, Absalom here was working against God's design, against God's kingdom, and was desiring to create a world in his image. The heart of Absalom and his ambition is not the glory of God, but rather the advancement of self. And we need to pause there.
Because we can look at Absalom and go, man, what a shame. But we need to let the Holy Spirit in those words, in those moments, press that upon our own hearts. How easy it is to be about our own kingdom, the advancement of self, even in the name, hear me, even in the name of justice, it can be more about self-justification, self-advancement, self-promotion. Some of you go, Kyle, um, I've been with you through this study in First and Second Samuel, and uh, David hasn't really turned out to be that great lately, right? Like, let's list, let's not, let's not list the things David's royally messed up, right? But like, we can think of them. Like Absalom, he's, he's kind of right. David is disengaged. His father's not doing what he should be doing. His father's doing many things that, that the Lord is against, that is sin that the Lord has come up against. However, here's where we have to recognize something that is foundational to our Christian faith. Listen to me and listen to me clearly. That God does not relate to us based upon what we deserve. God relates to us on the basis of his love toward us. Did you hear me? God does not relate to David based upon what he deserves. What does David deserve? David deserves death. Listen, what do you and I deserve as sinners opposed to God, right? Apart from God, separated from God. What do we deserve? We deserve death. However, what, is, what does Psalm 103 say? We read this last week. This was our reading. Look at it. He, God, does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Praise be to God. That's the gospel. That God does not deal with us according to the way in which we should be dealt with. How does he deal with us? For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. That's how God deals with us. He deals with us based upon his glory, his love being put on display. You say, Kyle, Let's see this in the text. I'm glad you asked for it. Verse 6. To show you Absalom is about his own glory. Look at verse 6 of chapter 15. At the end. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. That means he was sitting at the gates. Here it is. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Big deal. Huge deal. What does it mean to steal? What it means to steal is to take from someone something that does not belong to you. The writers of Scripture are very intentional because every word is inspired by the Holy Spirit to put the word, he stole. He took something from the men of Israel that did not belong to them, right? To him. Who did Absalom steal from? Well, in the immediate context, it was David, his father. David was the anointed king in the people's minds and hearts belonged to him as their king. Remember, the Lord had set him up there. And David was more than just a political figure. He was the one that directed the people's minds and hearts to God. David was meant to remind people who God is. And Absalom's goal was to show people Absalom, not God. To steal, if you will, God's glory. That's the ultimate stealing that Absalom did. He's drawing people away from God and from the ways of God. And again, I think this is another warning to us. 
That we can be people who rob or steal God's glory when we participate in things like disunity, in gossip, in slandering other people, in marring the imago Dei or the image of God in other people. Rather than genuinely loving God by promoting unity within the body of Christ and outside the body of Christ. Henry Nouwen, he said this, he said, it seems easier, listen to these words, it seems easier to be God than to love God. Easier to control people than to love people. Easier to own life than to love life. Is that not true? It seems easier to play God. It seems easier to control people than to love people and easier to think you own life than to love it in terms of the way God has given you life. So we have Absalom stealing the hearts of the men of Israel. And then we have Absalom in his plot against David heightening in verse 10. And this little phrase which slips by us as uh, modern hearers and modern readers, I'm not going to let slip by us. So Absalom comes to David, his father. And by the way, this is after about a four-year time span. He comes to David and he says, uh, he says, Dad, can I go to Hebron? Which Hebron, interestingly, is where they moved the Ark of the Covenant from. It was a place, of, it was a center of worship for, for them. Can I go to Hebron and make sacrifice? Can I go there and worship God? And his father looks at him and says, David looks at him and says, go in peace. And then the real conniving begins from Absalom. The real conspiracy begins because he sends out spies. He sends out these people and he gathers his entourage to go to Hebron with him. And notice their announcement at the verse, at verse 10, the end of verse 10. It says, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, here's what I want you to say. Absalom is king at Hebron. So this is his plan. Once he gets there, he wants all of these people to announce that Absalom is king of Hebron. Here's the problem. Every current reader of this or hearer of this would have attached it back to an announcement that every Jewish person would have made announcing not that Absalom is king, not that David is king, not that any individual is king. Here is the announcement, and you can see it throughout the Psalms, especially during this historical moment in Kings, right? Here is their announcement. God has become king. God is the king. God is the king over and over in Psalms. This was their announcement. God has become king. And so they would have heard this. They would have read this, right, even after the moment. And they would have said, what? Absalom has become king? Hold on. There would have been gasps in the room. There would have been, been, been shouts of blasphemy, God's name being replaced by Absalom. This was his goal. It was his kingdom. It was his kingship. Absalom has become king. You see, there are many similarities between Absalom and David. Many similarities in their life, right? As father and son. However, this is the key difference between Absalom and David. Never once does David put himself forward as a replacement for God as Israel's ultimate king. In spite of all his failures, shortcomings, David never for a moment considers his leadership as a position of personal power. Never once do we see that. That when it's usurped, when David sins, when he falls, notice how quick it is David reorients back to the king of kings. 
back to the Lord. David understand that God rules, that God is king and sovereign over all. David has become king. Never is a phrase we find in this story because David knew that he was simply a witness and a servant to God's sovereign rule as king. David understood what Absalom cannot grasp. And so here we have this coup and this conspiracy happening. And David understands it. He picks it up. And he flees Jerusalem. David on the run again, right? They're like, we spent like 14 weeks with David in the wilderness. We'll go a little faster this time. So we have this phony king and this deadly ambition that he has. And now we see a fleeing king and a faithful God. A messenger comes to David. This is verse 13 saying the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Can you imagine that? A father hearing that about your son who's trying to overthrow you, trying to run you out. And David makes an interesting decision here, one that I I struggled with a bit. But I think this goes back to answering the question that I asked earlier, what is the source of your faith? David makes the decision to leave Jerusalem. I was like, why would David leave Jerusalem? Why wouldn't he stay? I mean, he's, he's a warrior. He probably has the numbers. Maybe, possibly, maybe he doesn't anymore. Why didn't he stay there and fight? Why wasn't he like, you know, toe-to-toe with Goliath again going this? But in this case, he, he leaves. I think because this is demonstrating that David's faith was not in a physical structure, in a geographic location, in his position, or in his rank. He flees because this is an absolute act of faith to walk away, to go away from this moment. Not spiritually, but physically. Say, Ka, how'd you get there? Read with me Psalm 3. Psalm 3 says this, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Pretty fitting, right? Where's David's faith? He says, oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Do you hear it? God, you alone are the lifter of my head. How many are my foes? I can't even number them, David is going. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, and the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many of thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Some of you need to just read and meditate upon Psalm 3 this week. The Lord being the lifter of your head, the Lord being your sustainer, the Lord being the one who carries you through every single moment and trial in your life. He is the one who sustains you. This is what David is saying. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Listen, this is a guy fleeing who's supposed to be the representative of God to his people, and he's running away, but he's going, listen, in our going, we are trusting the Lord above all else, that he's our salvation. He's the one we are absolutely clinging to. And so David begins this journey, and and, and Vivian read it, and I believe it's verse 30, that talks about weeping 
David weeping as he leaves Jerusalem and he's going up the Mount of Olives. Now I want you to think about someone else who wept as they came into Jerusalem. Luke chapter 19. Jesus, for those of you that didn't know, Jesus wept as he came in. David is weeping as he goes out. And along this road, which was known as the Jericho Road, he has really an encounter with 10 different people that 2 Samuel gives us in chapters 15 and 16. I'm not going to be able to go through all, all 10 people that are highlighted here. But it's a, little bit like, um, it's a little bit like the genealogies that dripped with each name is significance along this journey for David and for the people of God and God's hand, God's faithful hand toward him. And the first, the first name, and I do want to go through a few of them because I think it's such a beautiful picture as David is fleeing from Absalom, leaving Jerusalem, is Attiah. Attiah the Gittite. This is in verse 19. Look at it with me. Attiah the Gittite, he says, why do you also go with us? This is David talking to him. Go back and stay with the king for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wonder with, about with us? Since I, go, since I go, I know not where. Go back, David says, and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show his steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Attiah answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to him, all right, let's go. You say, Kyle, why is this a big deal? What's well, a big deal? Because you need to know where this gentleman came from. Attiah the Hittite was a Philistine. A Philistine from the area of Gath. You know who else came from Gath? That's right, Goliath. David would have picked up this gentleman and his family when he would have been in Ziklag or he would have been in that, that, that pagan region where the Philistines um, uh, ruled, right? He would have picked up this gentleman and somewhere along the way, Attiah had allegiance to David, a loyalty to David, so cling to him and has followed him all of those days. And David now, when he's fleeing out of Jerusalem, his guy comes to him, he's going, why are you going with me, man? And this guy's going, because that's what I do. I'm loyal to the Lord and to the Lord's Lord, lowercase k, king, you. I'm loyal to him first, and I'm loyal to you secondary. So get this, Attiah the Philistine, the Hittite, at some point along the way, has what? Become a believer in Yahweh, a God-fearer. You say, Kyle, how do you know that? Because of the language that David uses to him, may the Lord show his kindness and his faithfulness to you. That's like a blessing. And then also the language that he uses, as the Lord lives. Listen, only Yahweh's people make that kind of announcement. Let me tell you, Philistines weren't saying that. The nation of Philistia, they were not saying that. Only people who truly trusted in Yahweh. So get this picture. This is someone who has come into faith of Yahweh. Now, his language sounds very familiar for those of you that know your Bible. Familiar because it's said by David's great-grandmother, Ruth. Do you remember the conversation between Ruth and Naomi? Well, I've got it here for you. 
But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw this, she was determined to go with her. And she said, no more. That's exactly the same scene that's playing out here right with David and this first gentleman that he encounters. They've had this God encounter. And remember, Ruth is a Moabite woman, also a foreigner, who believed in the one true God. And going, where you go, I go as well. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 24, Abiathar and Zadok, or Zadok, these are priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant. They bring the Ark of the Covenant out to go with David. And though these priests are like, hey, listen, this is going with you. You're the king. We, 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 we are following the Lord. You're the Lord's anointed. The ark is going with you. And David stops them. Now, remember how historically the people of God had treated the ark sometimes. They treated it as a what? A commodity, a tool used for them. So listen, if David is thinking as the ark as a commodity or tool, he's going, yeah, bring that with us. Come on. We're going to go set it up and we are going to yeah, the Lord's presence and favor is going to be with us. But he looks at Zadok, and he looks at Abiathar, and he says, no, go back into Jerusalem with it. Go back into Jerusalem. Listen, the Lord's presence is going to go with us, and I want to make no mistake that it's the Lord who's going to bring about the salvation. And listen, the ark belongs back in Jerusalem. Take it back. And also in Jerusalem, you two priests, you're going to serve me in my kingdom as well. Here's what I want for you. And so get this, so David is sending back the ark of the Lord on his journey. We'll find out more about that in weeks to come. And then there is this person, as there is in any journey in difficulty, who at one point was David's friend, who has now become David's enemy. Ahath, Phil, is verse 30 through 31. And this guy is a big name in David's government. He was trusted as a counselor. He had a reputation of being, some, of being the wisest person in Israel. He was, gave great counsel, but now he finds himself by Absalom and on Absalom's side. This gentleman carries the weight of the people. Can you imagine the pain that David must feel when he hears that this man is siding with Absalom, that he's walking beside him? Psalm 41, we're not sure if it's credited to this moment, but it sure feels like it. It says this, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up. Psalm 41 is the same thing that Jesus echoes as he sits there with Judas, a friend who has come against him. And what's interesting about this encounter as he, as he finds out about this guy's switching of sides to Absalom is that David is not conniving. David doesn't first go to anger. David, it says, prays. He prays and asks the Lord that this man's counsel to Absalom would become folly. Might I add again, when is David at his best? When he's inquiring of the Lord. So David does not respond in his own power, but he brings it before the Lord. May this man's counsel be folly before Absalom. And the Lord, in his sovereign plan, rises up another guy. Verse 32, Hashiah. Hashiah, David will send back into Jerusalem, essentially to stand next to 
Ahithophel in the courts beside Absalom, essentially kind of balancing out this guy's wisdom. So this is David's advocate, and on this side is, is Absalom's advocate. And we'll see what this counsel produces in the weeks to come. But these are the men on David's journey, these encounters. Ziba, look at his name in, in chapter 16, verse 1. Ziba was a Mephibosheth. Remember that name? He was Mephibosheth's caretaker. And he comes to David as David is vulnerable, as David is fleeing Jerusalem and going, hey, Mephibosheth has, has, has sided, kinda, he's, he's kind of sided with Absalom. He's, he's kind of creating a coup as well, which ends up being a lie as we'll find out in chapter 19, okay? Ziba's real shifty, okay? And so David, not knowing that it's a lie, he gives, he literally gives Ziba everything from, that, that was Mephibosheth's. I mean, praying on David in this weak moment, in this vulnerable moment. And then comes, and this is where I want to land, comes this really interesting scene in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 5 and 8. Comes to this man, or this house of Shammai. And as he approaches this house, it says in, at the end of verse 5, Shammai, the son of Gera, and as he came, he cursed continually at David. And he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men who were on his right hand and on his left. And I don't know if this guy is just a fool because David, I'm sure, came with quite a few people with him, right? His mighty men were there. But this guy is cursing David. He's throwing stones at him. He's hurling. And listen, his curses are this. Verse seven, get out, get out. You are a man of blood. You are a worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. See, evil is on you for you are a man of blood. What? Like that's, that's his cursing. That's his hurling at David as he's fleeing. Now, just think about this. How would you respond to that? Just be honest. The guy's hurling stones at you. You got your mighty men around you. He's saying these things about you. You're like, listen, look, I can only take this so much. But it's like this, cons this perpetual, this consistent thing that's happening. How would you respond? Well, well I, I think the next verse is how I would respond. Verse 9. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. <laughs> right, right, like, give me one shot with him. Like, I, like, we'll keep going. Let me hang back, all right? Like, how many, like, don't raise your hand, okay? But you're like, let's deal with the matter right now. Let's just shut up. Let's, like, close this dripping faucet. David, you're still the king, man. You say, here's the deal with Abishai. He was all action and no prayer. As Eugene Peterson says, he was for righteousness with no roots in righteousness. You hear me? He was all for action. Hey, this is the common good, baby. Let me shut him up. But his roots were not in righteousness. And here is where we see the man who has roots in righteousness, David, how he responds. He says, essentially, to this guy, Abishai, who wants to shut up this other guy, he says, listen, what he's saying is not wrong. 
what he's saying is true about me. There are blood on my hands. I am guilty. I am a sinner. I have failed. I am broken. David is going, and let the Lord deal with me as he see fits. Because this guy might be speaking from the Lord. You don't know that because what he's saying is actually true. And David restrains Abishai. You see, but what David also knows is that there's something infinitely more powerful at play here than the honest cursing of Shammai. And that's the grace of David's God. That is the word of the Lord. And hear me, this is remarkable. In Shammai's cursing and hurling of stones, David is able to hear God's word to himself. In this desperate moment, in this fleeing moment, David faces what he has become and what he has always been, a broken man in need of God's mercy and grace. You see, unlike Absalom, David cared more, way more about what God's way and God's word was about than his own ease, his own appearance, and his own comfort. Listen, the voice of the accuser in this text, the voice he was saying, the words he was using were all true. You know what this reminds me of? The end of the story. Revelation. Revelation 12. The end of time. And I heard a loud voice in in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. Our king and his kingdom have come. And what happens when our king, capital KK, in capital K kingdom, come? For the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down. The Shammai. This man, this woman, this voice that wants to accuse you, accuse you, accuse you. Listen, that is a name for Satan himself, the accuser of the brethren. And listen, his voice is alive and well and active, accusing, even today, accusing you, accusing me, going, who are you? Who are you to come to church? Who are you to sing those songs? Who are you to lift your hands? Who who are you? Remember who you are. Remember what you've done. Remember what's our Remember these things. But when our king comes and his kingdom is set up, here's what happens. The accuser of the brethren, he has been thrown down. And that doesn't just mean like thrown down, like just like set down. No, thrown down means put off of his throne where he can accuse no more. The one who accuses them day and night before our God And get this, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives. Here it is, for they loved not their lives. You know who loved their life in this text? Absalom. He loved himself. He loved him some him, right? He loved himself and he wanted to see his kingdom put on display because he knew what justice looked like. He knew what it looked like to rule and reign apart from God. But this says that they love their lives not even unto death. Let me tell you this morning of the incredible faith that it took David not to look at Abishai and go, hey, deal with that, but to walk away. To walk away going, his accusations are true. 
But let me tell you what is more true is the word of the Lord, the grace and mercy of our God. And at the end of 16, I love this picture, how the chapter wraps up. And it says, now, look at it. At the, verse 14, the end of our section. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. Some of you walk into this room and you are weary. Arrive to the stream of water, right? With Jesus, the living water. You arrive to that stream and you're weary. But what it says, in there, he refreshed himself. That the refreshing waters of Jesus Christ are here and flowing. They're here to over or supersede the voice of the accuser in your life and in my life. The one who wants to put you down, the one who wants to distract you, the one who wants to overspeak, right? There's living water. There's available water. There's waters that are refreshing. And some of you, you've tried to take matters into your own hands. You've tried to quiet the voice of the accuser in your own strength, in your own power, by trying to fix some things, trying to modify this or change this. And what Christ is offering you is himself, the only thing that can actually refresh you, the only thing that can actually give you the security and the comfort and the things that you're looking for in your life only come through Christ. And he's opening himself up today for you to receive that just as it was for David. And listen to me, just as it was for Absalom. But Absalom will never come to these waters. He will never be refreshed. And so I want you to stand with me as we prepare our hearts to take communion. And if you need the elements, our hosts are here. Just lift your hand, they'll walk. Listen, I have you stand to change your physical posture purposely. The same thing that we do in reading of scripture, we say to honor the reading of God's word, to change our physical posture. But in this physical posture change, I want us to pause just for a moment to set our minds upon Christ. The one who came into Jerusalem weeping over what he saw in his people, knowing that the God-man, the perfect one, would give his life as a sacrifice for those who are far off. That the Holy One would carry our unholiness so that we might be credited as righteous as perfect, as holy. So I want us to pause here. I want us to think upon Christ. And this meal, this, this meal that we receive every week is a meal of invitation, of Christ inviting you to be seated at his table through his grace and through his mercy. If you would just receive it, if you would just trust in him, that the way of Absalom, <laughs> it may look like it's winning for a moment, but ultimately leads to death. The way of worldly ambition will never lead to the destination you think or that it promises. So I want us to take just a moment, if you would bow your heads, quiet your hearts.
and ask the Holy Spirit to search you. Search us. Jesus was betrayed after giving thanks he took bread and he broke it and he told his disciples that this bread represents his body broken for them broken for you and me so that we might be made whole let's partake of the bread together same night Jesus took the cup he said that this cup represents his blood for some of you that's you're like that's kind of weird no it means that his death we can have life that the payment required for our sin for our iniquities that he doesn't hold against us requires a payment God doesn't just dismiss those without payment of a perfect sacrifice that's what Jesus says my blood atones for and so we raise the cup of salvation, the new covenant, and we take it together. In church, the only fitting response after taking broken body and blood of Jesus is what? Worship. Let's worship right now in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that he is the one who fulfills all of the scriptures, as he says. Thank you that he is the one who leads us to this place of refreshing. And so, Lord God, I pray that we might live under his rule in his kingdom this week. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us faith and eyes to see as you see. Holy Spirit, lead us where you see fit for the glory of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen and amen.